Welcome to On Translation with Joseph McElhaney in Stores, Connecticut, and Mohammed Al-Bakri, apparently from a submarine off the coast of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, Joseph, you know, Tennessee is a landlocked state and it doesn't really have a coast. But I wish I were on a submarine. I know I would sound like one, maybe, <laughs> because I'm interviewing you uh, through a long-distance line, but... Hopefully it will be okay. You know, it sounds like you've uh, you've reached land and have emerged, so uh, so sounds sounds good now. But hopefully, hopefully later on you won't drift back out and and uh, go back into the the depths of the sea in your submarine. But we'll we'll let the uh, listeners decide where where you end up. Well, we will end up discussing and facing <laughs> uh, the famous trope of body spirit and its impact on how we perceive the value of translation. Our uh, point of departure, our starting point, is a comment in the Persian Letters, which is an, an obstetrical novel by Montesquieu, famous political philosopher in the 18th century and one of the major figures of the Enlightenment. So uh, he has a scene in which a man of science, a geometer, is chastising a translator who is proud of his work in translating Horace. So I would like our audience to picture this scene. A mathematician, a geometer, is strolling down the streets of Paris in the 18th century. And he runs into a translator. The translator reveals that he has been working as a translator for 20 years. And he shares the wonderful news that his translation of the Roman poet Horace has just been published. I have some big news to tell you, he says. I have just presented my Horace to the public. What? said the geometer. Your Horace? What the heck are you talking about? He has been around for 2,000 years. And wait a minute, did you say you have been working as a translator for 20 years? Does this mean you haven't been doing any thinking for yourself for 20 years? Obviously, the poor translator becomes dispirited and deflated. He did not get the appreciation that he expected. But he still tries to mount a feeble attempt of defense. But, monsieur, don't you think I have performed a great service to the public, making it easy for them to read the best writers? I... I... I lost myself. I thought it was on the streets of Paris uh, there for a moment. <laughs> and so after the point uh, you just mentioned, Mohammed, um, what the, the geometer comes back uh, after the translator tries to defend himself for performing such a great public service so that the public can read the best writers, uh, he says, well, I wouldn't say that. As much as anyone, I hold in high regard the sublime geniuses whom you dress up in rags. But you're not like them at all. You could translate forever, but no one will ever translate you. Translations are like brass coins. They have the same value as a gold piece and are common currency with the people, but they don't last. They're a cheap alloy. You say you want to give these illustrious dead a rebirth in our day. And I grant that you do provide them with a body, but you don't give them life. What's always missing is a spirit to animate them. And, you know, that's, and, a, that's yeah. a cutting thing for most translators to hear. And it's interesting that we get all these tropes of translation here that have to do with clothing, right? Putting the new dress right. on a body, uh, the idea of currency as a kind of exchange. But at the heart of it, is, as you brought up, uh, is this trope of body and spirit. Uh, and it's something where, right, the geometer does not seem to recognize as possible in any way uh, whatsoever. So my question to you, I guess, is, yes, you mentioned that it's, it's a cutting remark. I think it's actually 
savage. It's a rampaging attack on the value of translators. But it's surprising because, as I mentioned, uh, Montesquieu is one of the enlightened figures, but there is nothing enlightened about this view of the translator's work. So uh, why does Montesquieu have his character say such things? Where well, does this come from? Yeah, and I think um, you're right to point out that disjunction. And, and one thing I'll say is, so one for people to recognize, the Persian letters themselves uh, are a pseudo-translation, right? So the, the basic setup is you have uh, these two Persian visitors, Uzbek and Rika, uh, visiting Paris, and uh, Montesquieu weaves an epistolary novel with these observations by these constructed others uh, on European life and mores. Now, uh, Montesquieu, there's certainly level of ironies in here, and I don't think the geometer's position represents Montesquieu's views uh, at all. Uh, and in fact, I think if we read the whole letter and, and look at some of the arguments put forward in it, we'll see that he's really, the geometer is a, an object, I think, of satire and scorn and, and mockery, and rightfully so, particularly because, well, Montesquieu, a figure of the Enlightenment and known for a political philosopher, he was a humanist. And I think the way the geometer comes out of this in his attack on a particular view of translation is anti-human. But that's not to say that the geometer doesn't have a point and that hits it the way we still think and talk about translation, uh, particularly in maintaining a kind of ideal, and often it seems like a scientific or mathematical ideal at which translations aim. And there's a way in which thinking about translation in those terms may lead to an anti-humanistic spirit in translation. So we will get to that. Uh, that's a very good point. But I have to say you kind of Restored my faith in Montesquieu. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I understand that it's an obscenity novel, so of course it's not a treatise, it's not a tract, it's dramatization, and there is speaking through a character, and we cannot assume, of course, that the character speaks for the author himself in, in this case. But my second question was, where does this come from? I know that Montesquieu is not the originator of this view. He is an heir of a very long tradition that upholds this binary or dichotomy of the spirit versus the letter and so on. So you want to talk a little bit about the tradition within which she operates, perhaps going back to the Greeks and the Romans? I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, but is there something platonic about this view? It's this spirit, this ideal world of forms that is unassailable and unapproachable. Is there a connection there? Or? I don't want us to get off into the idea of, like, platonic forms and ideas, right? But there is something in the way that the geometer, and we might say people who look towards, call it a platonic ideal of translation if you want, right, that it's not really translation anymore. It's what uh, some have called, say, a vertical model uh, of translation rather than a horizontal. That is, you are accessing the same original spirit as the text you're translating. So in one model, say, let's stick with uh, the Montesquieu letter and the version of Horace. So the translator just thinks, look, I have this Latin text of Horace, the first century poet, uh, and I'm reworking him into the French language. And therefore, that's an act of translation. And, and maybe it's not ideal, but it's close enough, it's recognizable as Horace. The geometer 
has this more vertical and platonic view, which right. is to say, think about a theorem of Euclid. You don't need to translate that. If I see Euclid, the original Greek, and I want to translate that, the geometer's view is really like, well, you're, you're both looking to the original theorem, this unchanging right, ideal, this right. Uh, kind of knowledge that doesn't really, that actually defies translation. So um, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Right, so you might think definition of a circle, right? So from a geometer's point of view, I, if, even if I draw a circle on a, on a cocktail napkin and it's a little ragged, most would say, well, that looks like a, a circle. But from this strict perspective represented by the geometer, that circle drawn on the napkin might as well be a square, right? Because it's certainly not a circle. It doesn't have points, a series of points equidistant from a single point, right? So right. it's, like you say, it's kind of all or nothing. So how about the Romans? So what I just said in terms of translation, if you can call it platonic, is not really the way Plato uh, like speaks about translation in the ion. And, and, but in the Greeks themselves, if we look at it broadly and maybe a little over simply, were really resistant to the idea uh, of translation. Or let's say they really were singularly uninterested uh, in the idea Whereas the Romans, you might say the Romans, their literature was born in translation. Uh, we might even think it's their culture is one of translation. And in fact, most of this was because they saw themselves, uh, not without reason, enthralled to Greek literature. Uh, mm -hmm. And Horace himself, again, the, the poet who is the, the subject of the translation in the Montesquieu letter, uh, has a famous line, at least famous amongst uh, classicists and others, with Graecia capta ferum victorum capit, right? Captive Greece captured the savage victor, meaning the Romans. For example, the first bit of Roman literature we have is a translation of Homer's Odyssey. The first Roman epic, which really was very much a Roman epic, nonetheless, the poet Aeneas who's in fragments now, he talks uh, about at the beginning of the spirit of H Homer inhabiting his body, that Homer comes to him in a dream and says, oh, I, you know, I've transmigrated uh, in, into your body, right? Which is another interesting way of thinking about a, a kind of translation, uh, which Aeneas was not translating a Greek work, but in some ways he was becoming the Roman translation of Homer himself, right? Roman comedies were both translations and something mashups of Greek new comedy. So they were born in translation and saw much of their work as types of translation. And again, Horace himself was working with the Greek poetic traditions. So I want to talk about Horace here because I think he has some famous line about the act of translation itself. I don't know if he mentioned the binary of letter and spirit. In the Ars Poetica, is so his poem, which is, you know, it's the art of poetry, supposedly about how to write poetry, but maybe more about how not to write poetry, and it has, <laughs> its, has, its, has its ironies. Uh, but he has a line... Uh, he has the phrase like werbo werbum, right? Carabas rhetoric fides interpres. So we see the werbo werbum, like verbo verbum, right? Which word for word. And mm -hmm. and the line, that line in itself says, you know, see to, to it that you render word for word as a fides interpres, a faithful interpreter, faithful translator. So we get the word faithful in there as well. Right. But I think what he's, what he's actually saying in the context is that Faithful to what? There is something implied here. It's not explicitly stated, but can well, we say that he's actually invoking the, the notion of the spirit here as well? Yeah, I, I think uh, he is, but I think in a different way. And I think what he's doing is saying, if you want good translation in the sense of 
this maybe literal word for word. And maybe fetus, we might think, is maybe literal. I think one person translated it as slavish, which is nice, right? That actually makes for bad poetry. So to go back maybe to Montesquieu's letter a little bit, right, with this, uh, where the geometer and the translator seem to be talking past one another, the, the geometer really only thinks in terms of, say, spirit, and therefore really original works. So for him, Horace, the way Horace is speaking in the Ars Poetica, that is, if you want to be a good poet, you really only work with the original spirit. So maybe you're inspired, maybe this French translator of Montesquieu's, if he had said, I am inspired by mm-hmm. Horace's poetry, and I'm going to write French poetry of my own that maybe originates in some ways from Horace's, but it's not a slavish, faithful, word-for-word version of Horace. If you do that, uh, you're really ending up with nothing any good. And and so, right, this is where, is where it gets the body, spirit, and the distinction between translator and original author uh, can right. sometimes break down, right? Because it's really about a particular relationship to a particular kind uh, of original. And I think Horace's line uh, is, is actually kind of cutting through that. So you mentioned the word inspired and inspiration, and I think that is a good segue to perhaps one of the most famous stories about the act of translation, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Torah or the Hebrew Old Testament. The Greek king of Egypt at the time under the Ptolemaic rule, Ptolemy II or Ptolemy Philadelphus, mm-hmm. he wanted to enrich the offerings or the positions of the Library of Alexandria, and uh, he commissioned a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. But as the story goes, he assembled 70, or in some accounts, 72 Hebrew scholars, but he didn't tell them why he assembled them, and he put them in separate rooms, and he went to each one of them separately and said, I would like you to tell us about the, the laws of Moses, and write it down. After a while, they all emerged with the same text, miraculously, <laughs> down to the particles and prepositions and the same word order. So, of course, it's a fantastical story. It's hard to believe from a rational point of view. We have two translators, so they would come up with two different versions, <laughs> but not if you believe in divine inspiration. Right, or uh, or really this this idea of the spirit that can be removed from the body, right, that can have an existence outside the body and therefore can a Holy Spirit, like, leave one body and then find itself into another body in a, in a kind of miraculous uh, resurrection. And that's that's what it depends upon. So, you know, people know the story and, you know, we have a few different versions of it. And if you look at the different versions, there's some anxieties about this body and spirit and some sides of the somewhat tendentious view, right? About the separability of the body-spirit. Right. Yes. And so mm-hmm. for the Septuagint, right, you had this large Jewish community in Alexandria. They're Hellenized, and, and some may have lost the, you know, they were Greek speakers and didn't know Hebrew, and so they needed a copy of their, their sacred scriptures. And so, for example, one of the one of the versions we have is actually by uh, Philo Judaeus, who was in the, in the first century uh, A.D., 
ride of Alexandria. Yeah. I want to mention that I love this story, not least because it takes place in my home city. <laughs> oh, that's uh, right. I, no, I yeah, so yeah. it has a central place in the history of translation. Yeah. Alexandria, Egypt. Yes. Yes, it does. And uh, so what's interesting about Philo's account, and so he's writing in Greek, is he makes this claim that the translators, these separate translators in separate rooms, he says it's as if they had the same voice whispering in their ears, right? Mm -hmm. As if so they, they weren't actually, they didn't need the text in front of them. It was they were all unified with the spirit of Moses, right, who was believed right. to have right, been the author. Uh, and in fact, what's interesting is Philo compares their translation to the translation of geometry or logic, right? Which, as we said before, right, is is kind of the perfect <laughs> ideal. And sometimes it's also the worst version because it's it's untranslatable because it doesn't need translation. Right. And so, yeah, Philo sets this out and says, see, it was this miraculous thing where they really weren't translators. They themselves became prophets. They all had the same spirit. And... Augustine, right, St. Augustine, right, writing in the, the early 5th century uh, A.D., right, father of the church, uh, in his, his massive work, uh, The City of God, he basically follows Philo's account. And it's funny, the phrases he used, he says, as if they were one spirit. Right. right. Um, which is interesting because in that case... Right, if you had a divinely inspired, you don't need seventy or seventy-two. You only actually need one translator. Just kind of evidence of its miraculousness. Right. right. Um, but don't you think it's ironic that if this is true, it, it kind of actually undermines the act of translation because that's basically the moral of the story, or at least one reading into it is that the best translation is the text itself. Right. right? Yeah, and th this is uh, both uh, uh, Philo and Peter goes into regards to this, like, well, as if you're changing the body. I mean, he he struggles with trying to make a case of this. Like, well, it's like even though you're changing the body of the text in the Hebrew and the Greek letters they managed to really find the exact proper. So um, he even compares the text to siblings, and it's like, like, like they were twins. And so that people who were bilingual, like they didn't even know which one they were reading, whether they were reading Hebrew or Greek, because it really was the same. So you're, you're right to point out, and this is why it kind of goes back to the geometer who takes this idea of the spirit to this you know ideal extreme, that you this perfect translation is not a translation at all. And this text recognizes this because it says, well, it's, it's really the same spirit. They kind of bypass right. the text. Uh, maybe it creates problems later, which we might get into. Another version of this uh, Septuagint translation, which is quite interesting and perfect. In, there's a letter of Aristeus, interestingly, a forged letter, but it was before Father was writing and, and well before Augustine, probably 2nd century B.C. Which, so it's our earliest version of this Septuagint translation legend and, and what's interesting about it is it's of a very human process there's nothing miraculous about it and instead of these translators being put in 70 or 72 separate cells where they're not allowed to communicate with anybody and you know mm -hmm. you, in the detailed versions like they brought their food and then they can't leave and this one they're just in a one great hall and they compare notes right what we would call a collaborative translation now doing right. a collaborative translation with 70 people might get a little unwieldy but you know <laughs> doing it doing it online might work right and and but what was what's nice about this forged letter of Aristeus the version is that so they compare notes, and then they come to an agreement about a version, and then they bring it, the rabbi, and it's read before the community, the Jewish community, and everybody says, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfectly great. happy with it's it. It's perfectly yeah. happy, it's accurate, and then the passive degree, like, let no one change it. And so 
there's nothing miraculous about it. Um, it's a very human process. It's a, it's a, it means something to the community in a way that this miraculous version doesn't. And what I like about it is that it really is the process of translation in this non-miraculous version, which brings the community together. It's not uh, isolating, right? You do need 70. You do need a polyphony of translators um, to kind of come up with this agreed-upon community-wide translation unlike the miraculous one. And I'll, I'll just want to say, so Jerome, patron saint of translators, and of course, because he was a great translator, for the record, Augustine, right, does not, probably really didn't know Greek very well, certainly didn't translate. <clears throat> Jerome basically agrees with the letter of Aristeus version. At least he says the miraculous version, he, he basically says it's a lie. And he says, yeah, they were, they were working together. There was no, there was no miraculous version, right? Um, yes. And, and one of the other thing I want to say about Jerome is his interesting take. So he's most people, like a translation studies reader, will begin with his letter to Pomachius, right, where he says, oh, he promoted the uh, translation according to sense, right, ad sensum, rather than the literal version. But in fact, right. Jer- Jerome makes an exception in that letter, which, which people often pass over, where he says, except in the case of sacred text. He says in sacred text, you actually need to do more of a word-for-word, a literal translation, because there is a mystery in the word order in sacred text, right? That that word order has a particular uh, meaning. Um, And so even he kind of recognizes, again, sacred text, we might think of this extreme case, like the, again, with the geometer and this idea where it's got to be a circle, like a mathematical circle, it's not a circle, right? It's got to be... You know, it's, it's got to be Bereshit, it's got to be Genesis, it's, it's got to be that, or, you know, you can't lose anything in it, otherwise it's, it's lost its sanctity, right? And so Jerome really comes down on this very human side of translation, which stands uh, against, and in some ways the best defense against the geometers, you know, savage attack, uh, as you characterize on, on the work of translators. Um, so we say that Saint Jerome espouses a humanist view of translation. Yeah, I, I think so, and and I and I think it's important because he, you know, as we know, was a hardworking <laughs> translator. I mean, he really dealt right. with it, and I think, therefore, he recognized the sanctity that could come out of it was more in part of the the process of the community. You kind of alluded to the possibilities of many problems with this notion of body and spirit. Uh, and I want to get into that. Both of us have a problem with this dichotomy. But is there anything good that came out of it? It's still part of mainstream translation theory, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, people have talked about it, but we, we haven't gotten away from it. And even when we get away from body and spirit... I think we still we still talk about translation, uh, translator and author, translation and original, really in those terms, right? That we still kind of have that underlying uh, conception in it. But, right. So the maybe the good thing about having that that ideal is that it does cause a translator to dig into a text, right? To not be cavalier, to take it very seriously, so that and in doing that, right, engaging with a text so deeply, trying to you know, get to the real meaning, to capture, you know, the true meaning, um, even if that's, you know, inevitably going to fail, at least it probably opens up the text uh, in ways that a more casual attempt at translation would not. If you just say, well, it, 
it doesn't really matter too much because obviously it's going to be imperfect. It's going to be things, you know, things that aren't right about it. So I'll just, I'll just skip over these couple of words. I'll just do it. It'll, it'll be fine. I'll fudge it a little bit, right? And in some ways, that's a disservice, maybe even to the tradition of uh, traditions of translation. But I think also a disservice to the inherent humanism that one can find in translation by by struggling with it. I've always had a problem with this notion of the spirit, the soul. It strikes me as being mystical, mystifying, utterly vague, and simply unhelpful. So, as you kind of alluded to, it's either or. You either get it or not. And it's also an easy charge against any translation you don't like. It doesn't capture the spirit, right? Uh, But what does this mean? It's kind of a lazy charge as well. You don't have to elaborate much. But the applied linguists in me say, well, what exactly is meant by the spirit here? Where does this spirit reside? Where is it located in the text? And I think of the text as a bundle of rhetorical, linguistic, stylistic options. And we could talk about the translated text does kind of closes off certain ambiguous possibilities in the first text, or it doesn't capture the sense of rhythm or assonance or the irony or satire. There is a more sophisticated framework and language that we can use to actually shed more light on the act of translation. Just saying it doesn't capture the spirit or it's faithful to the spirit is not very helpful. Uh, My take on it might be, in some ways, going more towards the mystical uh, and away from yours, but with with the same uh, same result. Because I do think, once we just say that there is a spirit of a text, right? there's the assumption that there is our spirit and not spirits and i mean i like to think of uh you know a text is inhabited by by multiple spirits right um at, at the very least if we're going to talk about uh spirits and that um there's this i the ideal of capturing the spirit behind it is an ideal of closure whether we should really even be aiming for that even in the full recognition that it's an impossible ideal we're never going to reach it and it has some maybe practical benefits but just having that as an ideal of translation to me is antithetical to uh, again the humanism the translation the stuff that i was pointing out in the letter of aristeus uh, and jerome right that if you still have that ideal part and parcel of our conception of translation you're very much undermining to me the most the most valuable part of uh, the act of translating, um, which is, again, uh, you mentioned like the ambiguous uh, voices, uh, the numerous voices, but also in terms of the sense of, uh, of a more human community. And if I, if I can take that one step further is to undo this notion of uh, translator and author uh, in terms of their relationship to certain originals. Now, I know recently... Some people say, well, we want to elevate translators in to be the equivalent of authors. And I understand that. And I think, Or at least think of translation and, and writing as twin processes. Yeah, that- but the thing that distinguishes them is not all that important. And what distinguishes them is really just a kind of relationship, a particular relationship to a particular kind of an original. That is, we think of a translator is producing a, a literary product that's based off a reading, a very close reading of one, often like original text, whereas an original piece uh, of literature and authorship. If we actually think of translation, the act of translation, as the primary mode of literary production, 
and mm-hmm. that think of authorship as just a variety of that. Right? And if we just had kind of one word that would en- encapsulate both, and then maybe if we needed to talk about, well, this person's originals, right? This person was really working with this one original, but probably had other stuff in mind and maybe was working with other translations as well, right? This is just common. Uh, this person, right, who we used to call an author, well, they were inspired by this text and maybe they used bits here. Um, uh, I think we would, one, avoid some of the... Uh, the issues and debates and controversies to do with translation and authorship, and, and I actually think it's, I, I think it's a more, well, I was going to say more accurate, but that might not be fair. But I think it's a more meaningful way of thinking about translation as a kind of primary mode of literary cre- creation, and also maybe a, a primary mode of being uh, a human being. And we kind of think of that in terms of original creation, but really that's. That's just a, you might say, a diluted form of translation. So in this new reconceptualization, we have to do away with the notion of the spirit then, because, I mean, this notion seems to be only tied to the first text. Only the first text has a spirit. The translated text has to capture the spirit. It doesn't have a spirit of its own. It's only playing second fiddle, trying to catch up with the mystical quality inherent in the first text. I want to still be on the notion of the spirit. You, you seem to kind of like it. Is it here to say? Can you envision not using this notion or not appealing to, to this term in our discussion of translation? I think I can envision it. I mean, but it is it has become such a profound historical reality, right, that we... Uh, Entrenched in our lexicon, yes. Right. right. And, I mean, and it has its, its history, which has influence not only the act of translation, the way people have been writing about translation, you know, for for centuries. Translation so often is just creative authorship where sources and inspirations are more visible. And sometimes when we think of if the the language of the new production is close to an earlier version, whether it's in the same language or different language, then we sometimes speak of adaptation and translation but if we didn't really have that concern right and this is where it's interesting to go back to Montesquieu which is a pseudo translation uh, right. now he had his sources and he you know took things from uh, travel logs from uh, from Persia that were uh, contemporary with him but how is an original you know literary work not that is like passed off as a translation well, yes. but, but even one that's not passed off I, I mean in some ways why you could consider them all kind of pseudo translations right they are translations without a visible or maybe extant original um to be some paradoxical about it right we will definitely have a whole episode <laughs> about uh, pseudo translations as well but i think this wraps it up for today in our next episode we will move a little bit more into linguistic territory and talk about translating dialects and non-standard uses of the language uh, which is really one of the major challenges translators encounter. It's going to be a lot of fun. You might hear Joseph making a spot-on rendition of American Southern English. Well, you just got to send me some bourbon. Some spirits, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you all take care now. Take care. Hey, take care. This has been On Translation. Visit us at ontranslation.org and follow the podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. 